This episode of What the Fintech is sponsored by SmartStream. Hello and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me for this episode is Vincent Kilcoyne, Executive Vice President and Head of Product Management at SmartStream. Welcome to the show, Vincent. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be speaking with you today. Uh, Likewise, it's great to have you on. This week's episode, we're going to be talking about the oftentimes competing drives of creating revenue, mitigating risk, and implementing technology innovation, and perhaps how those things can be merged to create something better than the sum of its parts. But first up uh, is our news and numbers segment. This is where we've gone out and found news stories with interesting or eye-catching numbers to discuss them in a little bit more detail. Vincent, you're the guest for this week's show, so you have the honor of going first. What number has caught your eye in recent days? Well, a number that's caught my eye in recent days is a relatively simple number, and it's a number of 15.8 billion euros. So on the basis that sooner or later we eventually start talking about big numbers, I like to think that 15 billion of total gross losses across a relatively small sample of banks during the year 2019 constitute something that definitely catches my attention, has caught a lot of people's attention. It was published in the annual banking loss report from ORX, which is a basically a operational risk exchange group, a consortium of banks and information providers that assess operational losses across the industry on an annual basis. And that number really showed me um, how fundamentally fractured and fragmented some elements of the banking community and the banking industry and banking operations and banking technology are. I looked at these numbers And it kind of, the longer I looked at it, actually, it didn't get any better. It actually got worse. I moved on and we started, I started kind of dropping my hand into my, my head into my hands. And I saw that when the report looked back over the years 2014 to 2019, the numbers looked like 482 billion euros in losses up until the year 2019. The average annual frequency of loss events since 2018, now this is the average annual frequency, was 63,942 loss events. So this means that mistakes are happening and approximately 64,000 of them happened and they cost a lot of money. If people view 15.8 billion as a lot of money, I like to think it is, all right? When we look at that, and these figures are quite disconcerting, shall we say. When we look at them, and I broke them out, there were a number of breakdowns and analyses that were carried out by or by the Operational Risk Exchange. And they break these events out into a number of different categories. So they look at internal fraud, they look at external fraud, and external fraud typically in, in our parlance is things like cyber, etc. 
and a number of things caught my eye. And I saw that when we looked at the number of actual events that happened by the different categories. So for example, external fraud in retail banking. So let's call that of a cyber nature. There were around about 100,000 of those events between 2014 and 2019 in the audience that was tested. So we're not talking about globally. I'm talking about in the about 100 banks that were assessed. There were 100,000 external fraud events. And the average loss, each one of those, the average cost of those, was approximately 70,000 euros, yielding a total cost or total loss from cyber of 7 billion. Now, that's a lot of money in anybody's speech or in anybody's parlance. But then when we start to look at some of the other activities, so we look at external fraud in trading and sales, and the numbers themselves are actually very different. There were around about 260 in trading and sales external fraud events. But here's the sting in the tail. Trading and sales, the total losses were 589 million for those 260 events, giving me an average cost of each loss of 2.2 million euros. So an average cost of a loss in cyber for retail is 70,000 euros. The average cost of a loss in cyber for trading and sales or external fraud for trading and sales is 2.2 million. Now that's a substantial number, but it actually pales into insignificance when we start looking at the other categories that they've been that the ORX report is looking at. So for example, if we look at client products and business practices, and that's really the world we live in. You know, if that's from a smart stream and a banking perspective, we deal in clients, products, and business practices. And the amount of money that was lost in retail banking over the period 2014 to 2019 was approximately 26 billion. And that's correct, it's a B with a billion. And then we step down into commercial banking. Well, commercial banking was 12.9 billion. But then when we actually look at it on, a, on an average cost of each loss, this is when it starts to get interesting. Not that the information so far hasn't been particularly interesting. But if we look at retail banking, the average cost of a loss in client products and business practices was 662,000 euros, while in commercial banking, the average cost of a client products and business practices loss was 1.6 million euros. So what this really caused me to do was to say, well, how bad is it in the other areas? So I started looking at the other sections and the other loss types. So execution, delivery, and process management, which is, again, as you know, we're SmartStream. What do we do? We specialize in exactly those areas. We specialize in clients, products, and business practices. And execution, delivery, and process management is basically managing the entire flow of trades, flow of, flow of information in from the client, payments, all that entire life cycle of data. So... All of a sudden, we start seeing that between 2014 and 2019. And this is in an industry that feels it is extremely highly automated. And if we look at trading and sales between 2014 and 2019, the losses were 9.3 billion in trading and sales. And then if we look at retail banking, execution, delivery, and process management, the loss was 13.6 billion. In commercial banking, it was 5.4 billion. 
In agency services, it was 1.9 billion. And then in corporate items, it was 5 billion flat. These are very large amounts of money that have got, in my opinion, a material effect on the balance sheet of an organization. They have got a material effect on the cost to an organization, which means by direct implication, they have got a material impact on the profitability and the margin. So everybody is talking about innovation. Everybody is talking about all these other elements and the adoption of new businesses, being agile, being innovative. But nobody is looking at saying, well, what happens if we're successful? What happens if we do grow? Are we growing into a model that means these costs are going to grow? If we don't look at these as a business and as an industry globally, are these going to become the unacceptable costs of doing business? Because from what I can see right now, they're almost seen as the acceptable costs of doing business. When you look at it then from a geographic perspective, we can see that this information mainly comes from the developed markets. The vast majority of this information comes from the developed markets, Western Europe, North America, etc. So what this is telling me is that the emerging markets have got an opportunity to grow and avoid getting into this kind of loss culture, unacceptable loss culture, if they choose very carefully the way in which they grow. So this is something that matters hugely to me. When I talk to financial people, many of them say, this is kind of on our radar. Well, it depends on who you talk to. If you talk to people at an operational level, they're not aware of these numbers. If you talk to somebody in the C-suite, they're aware, but not deeply familiar. So that's a lot of numbers. And these are quite disturbing and quite personally, it's I take it quite personal that organizations are still running and accepting this as part of the way in which they do business. I think you've uh, broken a record that the <laughs> amount of numbers we've had in the news and numbers round. I think that no, that's an astounding amount of, of figures that you've put out there. And I mean, we'll cover the the, the technical side of it in the Q and A. Sure. But I mean, you've touched on it there. But I just wanted to ask: Do you think that's th these sort of things are looked at by, especially in large financial institutions, as a, a part and parcel thing? Just like, well, this just this just comes with the territory of being a tier one. I I, I don't think it's necessarily something that people look at it exclusively from a tier one perspective. I think by and large, the financial community almost see it as a cost of doing business. And I know that's a horrible term, but it seems to be to a large extent that many organizations are finding ways to drive that down. And there is a massive amount of focus on it. When you look at the trends in the information over the many years, you can see that there is a relentless drive to lower those overall costs. But when you then start to break it out and you look at how those losses break out by business line, you can see some quite alarming trends. So, you know, if you look at the, the cyber, everybody's talking about cyber. They're all focusing on the, the cyber threat. But I've given you the numbers. There are bigger numbers. There are bigger amounts being lost. But shall we say some stuff just happens to be topical and it happens to be extremely fashionable. But there are certain elements that aren't fashionable. And as a result, they get 
accepted as being part of the BAU. Great. Well, like I said, we'll dive into this in some depth in just a second, but I'm going to shift it. You said fashionable, and I'm going to use this as a horrible segue. You know, they always say if you're going to segue between two things <laughs> not, and not signpost it because then it makes it sound like it was a lot more natural. But you mentioned fashionable, so we're going to move on to a company that deals in fashion, or at least paying for fashion, in Klarna. My number this week is 90,000, and that's the, the number of users which uh, by now pay later firm Klarna said were affected by a technical error last week, which led to customers logging into the wrong accounts or other when their own account viewing the details of others. Now, this is a fintech that has raised uh, a mammoth $1 billion in equity funding in March. It's got, it claims to have uh, 90 million users in 17 countries and partner the partnership deals with 250,000 retailers. But last week it had a bit of a, a technical hiccup with users saying that there was a major security issue, that people being able to see other users' stored bank details, addresses, phone numbers, purchases, etc. Klarna put it down to a an systems disturbance caused by a technical error. FinTech Futures, we contacted Klarna for a little bit more information about the, the data error, but received pretty much an identical statement to the one they posted on their website. The important in bad news for them, the news of the glitch arrived just hours after reports surfaced that the firm was planning a new fund round which could lift its valuation past 40 billion dollars the ceo said i'm going to attempt it and i apologize if he's listening i don't think he is but sebastian simakowski he reacted with dismay to it he said he, tw he tweeted it's that it's so sad and frustrating to realize we had a self-inflicted incident for 30 minutes affecting the privacy of some of our users he added full attention from all colleagues brought things back to normal we're going to take actions to avoid this going forward and communicate more broadly. Uh, and then later in a blog post, he added that only 90,000 uh, users have been affected. So it's an interesting one. I, I'm sure that Klarna are currently having to talk to both the, F the UK's Information Commissioner's Office and also in its home country of Sweden, the uh, Swedish Authority for Privacy Protection, both of whom require firms to voluntarily um, report any data breaches to them. And in Sweden, they, need, they needed to do it within 72 hours. It's been put down to human error and that it wasn't an external breach. Uh, and that also that uh, no sensitive data was revealed enough for it to be a full violation of GDPR. But the story for me brings back the TSB core banking issue where people logged into other people's accounts and that's, that brought a, a lot, brought a quite a sort of Damocles down on TSB. So I'm sure there may be some, especially in the risk department, some worried faces at Klarna. But I mean, this sort of ties into what you were talking about, Vincent. This is the kind of risk that can really hurt a company, don't you think? No, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that organizations increasingly need to focus on these elements. And that's a classic example whereby a, a data breach may or may not have a material impact on the business, either in terms of new customer adoption, customer retention. But I can guarantee you one thing, their competitors will absolutely be targeting it and will be you know, singing the praises of their own due diligence and processes and procedures and everything. So it's part of the world we live in, the sheer volume of data, the speed of innovation. And again, one of the things that you're doing is that when you're bringing on new customers, you're trying to grow and everybody always worries about, well, what happens if we get it wrong? Yes, but what happens if we get it extremely right? And I always, you know, I'm always somewhat contrarian. People say, well, what happens if it goes wrong? I say, yes, but what happens if it goes extremely right? Do we have the scale? Do we have the security? Do we have the ability to protect our BAU in the event that we are extremely successful, in the event that we get more customers than we had originally planned, in the case that our growth is far in excess of what we planned, do we run the risk of having to cause or incurring a major outage to our business, which impacts our ability to support 
the ongoing growth of the company and the confidence. And this is something that organizations really need to look at. Here we are in part two of the podcast. This is our more interviewed styled section where we focus the discussion down onto a specific industry topic or sector or trend. Uh, we're going to dive into the main topic in a minute, but first I'm going to give Vincent a minute or two to talk about uh, talk about SmartStream and his role at the firm before we dive in. So take it away, Vincent. Okay, thanks very much. So I'm Executive Vice President, Global Head of Products at SmartStream, and we've got a fairly large portfolio of products serving probably about 1,500 banks and financial institutions globally. We're West best known for reconciliations and the processing and the automation associated with that kind of processing data across financial institutions. We're also well known in the collateral management space, more recently in the cash and liquidity space. So pretty much anywhere that there is a major regulatory initiative and every single industry that we're in is impacted by regulation, be it PSD2, be it open banking, be it UMR and collateral, be it BCBS 248, which talks about real-time cash management. Then we also have solutions in fees and expense management, in reference data, in corporate actions, in digital payments. And we're basically at the heart of the data that powers most organizations. And on a daily basis, our priority is to facilitate that automation, to reduce errors, because if you reduce errors, you drive the margins and you protect the margins of the business. You have to support innovation. And we are constantly evolving our solution and our services because we're finding that many organizations want to be able to avail of our solutions, not only in an on-prem or a customer deployed and service model, but also in a hosted model or in some cases a BPO model, taking advantage of our expertise in supporting the services and the operational processes. So in a brief two or three minutes, that's what we do, and we do it for approximately 1,500 banks globally. Fantastic. Well, to, to kick off our, our topic, I'm going to give you a, a bit of a two-parter. So we talked to, we, we, you mentioned some big numbers earlier in the show, which showed the extent of which the risks that financial institutions are, are having to deal with. But to, to what extent is, is that the fault of technical and technological debt? And how can... If that and if it is a major contributor, how can banks go about untangling that the problems with legacy systems while still maintaining margins? So that's actually a really good question. And I wish that in its simplicity was actually all of the question. However, it's not. If you look at most organizations, the technical debt is actually in some cases a reflection of operational debt. And in some cases, the operational debt is a reflection of the technical debt. I cannot tell you how many times I've been in conversations with organizations where they've turned around and said, yes, we want to implement your new solution, but we want to do it this way. We want to do it the old way. We want it to look like the old way. So that to me means that there's an operational debt element that organizations need to look at when they are also looking at technical debt. Are there elements of technical debt that are pure, that can be purely targeted? Absolutely, right? 
categorically. But I think that when you look at the impact on the organization and you truly analyze and you deconstruct the problem into the technical debt elements and the operational debt elements, and if you address each one of those and create a very clear understanding of what your target operating model would be, both operationally and technically, and you create a strong alignment between those, you will actually have a better outcome. In some cases, if you look at the operational debt, you can leverage much of the technology and you can elegantly address the technical debt and drive real benefits you know, you don't have to do this major rip and replace. That's not something that you have to go at. You can address and enhance some of your existing technology stack, but without also addressing the operational debt, you will not address the true problems. You will not be able to reduce the operational losses. You will not be able to see the real benefit of the technical initiatives and the technology initiatives that you're undertaking. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, the rip and replace side of things there, because for a long time, I've been personally, I've been reporting on banking technology for about six, six and a half years now. And when I joined, the, the mantra was very much rip and replace is dead. You know, the whole there's no need to conduct that, that heart surgery in a, a moving vehicle or the tearing the plane's engines out at 30,000 feet, as it's always been called. And yet that appears to have been people are still repeating that mantra now. So if people are saying it so much now, is, is rip and replace still something that, that financial institutions are looking to achieve? And if not, then what is the best deployment method going forward to, to avoid these costly errors and mistakes that can cause so much damage? Right. So I think that depending on the organization, in, in some organizations, there's a degree of innovation that is has progressed quite well. I think that if we look at 2007 to 2015, for me, was probably a sweet spot in which the vast majority of innovation happened outside of the organizations, up and outside of the banks, because they were very much in a regulatory compliance mode. So that was a case of finding ways to address the disconnects. So if we look at BCBS 239, many organizations ran initiatives to bring in all of that data, the risk data, into an enterprise platform because the regulators had identified that the banks themselves, they had access to the data, but they didn't actually have access to the intelligence. And we're talking about the information pyramid. We've got data at the bottom, and then I've got information. And as I add more to it, it turns into wisdom. And there's less wisdom at the top than there is data at the bottom. But to make sure that your wisdom is based on the information and the data from one complete universe. So a lot of organizations undertook a huge amount and a lot of regulatory and compliance initiatives, and they were coexist with the existing systems because rip and replace was not an available option. Regulatory and regulatory compliance, shoring up the bank, addressing the failings of 2007-2008 was front and center. That resulted in a lot of organizations and the real growth and the birth of the fintech community because a lot of bankers and a lot of people were not seeing the innovation in the banks and they went outside because they could identify technological disruption to solve problems. Those problems typically occurred because of operational or data inefficiencies in the banks and the fintechs came up and they came up with ideas. However, what has happened is a lot of banks have now recognized that many of their systems are 
actually uh, fit for purpose. They are stable. I was in a panel discussion the last day and some people were saying, well, we are moving everything to the cloud. And another group were saying, we're moving everything off the off, off mainframe. And another group were saying, we're keeping everything on mainframe because you know what? It has never let us down and it's been running for 20 years and it is bulletproof. And another person said, we're moving everything to the cloud. And somebody said, yeah, but that means you don't own your data and you're having to pay to access your data. How does that work? So I think that this whole landscape needs to be looked at from a, a different perspective. The organizations are increasingly thinking that you know, maybe if we follow the data, we're actually going to be doing the right thing. If we align ourselves with the, the data and how it flows through my business, and if I can control that and understand truly how it moves through my business, then I can actually optimize the systems, the processes that I have. And that's really what I'm finding is that people are trying to find ways, for want of a better word, to sweat the available assets, to get more out of those assets. And in some cases, the technology is very old and there may be a, a global initiative to move everything away from mainframes into the cloud. But when you really look at it and you identify the true issues, there are perhaps hybrid approaches. But the whole concept of rip and replace, it's too fundamentally disruptive operationally and technologically at a time when banks have to be innovative, disruptive, and fundamentally remain in control because the regulators are not going to back off. So it's a very fine balance. And what we're finding is that by accelerating the speed with which data is managed, controlled, onboarded, and digested to the point that you can digest it with control because digestion without control is indigestion and nobody wants to really have that. So what we're doing is we're facilitating the ingestion of the data and the control of the data, not only from your internal compliance, but also from a regulatory perspective. So we're finding that the newer organizations are in some cases adopting some of the older techniques because they're or the, the, some of the more established technologies because they are proven and recognized by the regulators. And there was some story recently about the, the digital and emergent organizations where their cost of customer acquisition was becoming unacceptable because the cost of compliance was going up. And increasingly, organizations are looking at the established solution providers, such as ourselves, to assist them because we bring the investment banking, the banking DNA to a wider community. It's, it's really interesting that you mentioned about the, the changing attitudes going in the reverse direction. You don't hear from that. You don't hear about that a lot. And I think that what a lot of the expectations now for financial institutions driven by the new entrance is uh, a shortening uh, of both of time to market when it comes to creating new products and services, but that comes with also a shortening of the time to market, but also a drive from you know from on high that while we should get things out quick, they should also not cost us mm -hmm. a huge amount of money. So how has that affected the way that institutions approach their technology evolution or even their operational evolution, uh, and how do you expect strategies to change going forward into the next few years? Well, I think that there's been an interesting evolution that accelerated in, in 2020. So 2020 has been an incredible accelerant of many initiatives and change 
and um, innovation and agility and control and all of these things in a really concentrated time period. We find that absolutely the banks are innovating, but there are new types of customers emerging. We're, you and I are no longer the main customer. Corporates are no longer the, the unique customer. Banks now have to provide services to a customer that really doesn't care about being able to visit the branch. We're looking at the PSPs, the intermediaries, the fintechs, so the payment service providers. Those type of people are now customers of the bank, but in a very different way. They don't care about what the products are. They tell the banks what products they want to actually be able to gain access to. They look at the banks in terms of the technology that they have. They look at the banks in terms of SLAs and speed of adoption, the speed with which they can onboard the fintech, because these now become the competitive advantage. So if Bank A can onboard a customer, can onboard a fintech, can actually support all of the actual volume requirements, can support the SLAs, which can be very demanding because that's just the nature of the beast. And that's one side of it. The bank, however, have to be able to do that profitably. It has to be a profitable business. It has to be controllable and it cannot be pernicious in its nature on the operation or the balance sheet of the bank. So the banks are having to deal with a new type of customer who really doesn't care about whether or not they've got a branch, doesn't care about the retail products. They care about the services they can provide to their customers. And the way in which the bank talks to a fintech now is, What's your technology stack? They have to be able to show the actual fintechs what the technology stack looks like, how quickly they can be onboarded, what their API capability is, how quickly they can add new products, what are the SLAs, all of these things. These are not traditional B2C relationship metrics for a bank. Therein lies the challenge. So if we can help banks to address the problems in that way, then ultimately they're able to serve their customers and the new emerging type customers. And it also gives them a new revenue angle from existing systems, existing operations and existing people. to uh, everyone's favorite bit, part three, the FinTech gel. Have you come with a buzzword that you, that you want to send away? Oh, there are too many. I've been, honestly, Alex, this has absolutely put me into a, a spin. I've been going through this and I was saying to myself, well, do I go cyber? Do I go disintermediation? You know, do I do innovation? And then I looked down through the list and I thought, my God, the list of reasons for people to go into jail, right, are, are so long. So my one is, well, you've said AI. So I'm actually going to go with innovation. That's simply it. And I, that's going to put me in jail personally. But I think that it's such a misused and abused word. I would almost say it's actually relevant innovation. So maybe I should use the word relevance is the word that really matters to me because the number, I, I ran a fintech incubator for a number of years and the number of new ideas that came to me were amazing. They were absolutely phenomenal, but about 10% of them were relevant. 
And this is something that I hold very close to my heart because if they cannot pass the relevance test for me, then they're not going to pass the relevance test for a CFO, a CTO, a CIO, a CEO, a COO. And that's the perspective that I have to take. But, you know, you hear all of these stories about AI or blockchain or, you know, DLT technologies or whatever. And I just say, well, these are all incredible, but how do I give a monetizable benefit? What is the relevance to a bank of this innovation? Is it just innovation for people to say that they are innovating? Because everybody wants to say that they're innovative and they want to be seen as a fintech. Banks want to be seen as a fintech and they're innovating. And then you ask the question, what's in it for you? What is going to be the end state? What's the outcome? What's the why? What's the relevance? I'm, I'm glad you didn't say AI because I think, I think we've had AI submitted four or five times. Um, well, well, listen, Alex, I did a PhD in, in AI about 25 years ago. So I've been a closetly frustrated person in that world because the performance of the technology was not available to be able to deliver monetizable, relevant outcomes within an actionable time frame. Now, 25 years too late, we can. So, you know, I'm done. All right. You know, <laughs> you know, what we do, everybody's doing AI. But the first test that we have with our innovation lab is... Show me the problem it's going to solve and tell me what the relevance and the benefit is to my end customer. Does it drive down my manual touch points? If it drives down my manual touch points, that drives up my margin, that drives up my control. So everybody's talking about AI. Let's talk about relevant AI. Let's talk about mm. relevant innovation. I think innovation is a very interesting term to try and throw in the jail. It's it's like we've had terms like this before. Someone tried to submit fintech and we struggle with that one, mainly because it's in our brand name. So that's always going to be a struggle. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, just as you were speaking, I was, I'm looking here at the, the where I'm recording the podcast. And there is a uh, hand sanitizer, as our company has kindly provided everyone in this building, which it calls itself an innovative hand sanitizer. No, everybody is innovating. Every, the only people that I haven't seen innovating recently are the shoe manufacturers. Because it doesn't need to be innovated. It works, <laughs> you know, but it just needs to be relevant. And if you can actually find an, an innovative solution or an innovative approach that is relevant, then that's good. But there are thousands of innovations. I think I'm 100% with you, but I find it difficult to place uh, such a large concept into such a small yes, space. Yes, I agree. It's our, it's our fintech jail. Yes. Perhaps it's one that should be, you know, one that should be looking out for place it on a wanted poster and the in the on the saloon door for everyone to keep yes for. yes thou shalt not cross oh, it's actually it should be on the door saddle thou shalt not cross this door saddle yes <laughs> exactly well that's that's all the time we have for this episode of, of what the fintech thanks vincent very much for joining us you're welcome it's been an absolute pleasure i'm would be more than welcome to have an opportunity to speak with you again in the future and i thoroughly enjoy this so thank you very much yeah it's, it's been great to have you on before we sign off officially we'll give just to give us a chance to plug socials and websites i'll, I'll go first vincent so you can have a chance to drop all your twitter ads and your linkedin pages so you can find me on at ad hamilton 91 on twitter and on linkedin just by searching for my name look out for the, all the new stuff we're doing at fintech futures as we've recently appointed a new editor paul Pinzel. you can find him on linkedin as well to get in touch with him about all the opportunities that come with that vincent what have you got to plug well most recently we're 
we're always talking about AI and that, and we're talking about real-time learning. What we've recently been doing is a huge amount around something called affinity and our ability to explain why things and why outcomes have evolved from using our observational and affinity-based models. So this is something that we're really proud of. We believe that organizations are, as I said, they're trying to quickly embrace new data sources without necessarily knowing what those data sources are, um, what they look like, what they contain. And with our new affinity offering, we're making it possible for organizations to throw our AI affinity offering at unrecognized data, unseen data, new data, and incorporate that into their operations while providing the users with the ability to understand what happened. And in addition, providing the internal compliance and audit and control with a complete understanding into the full life cycle of all data as it comes in and it runs through AI models. And this is something that we're really proud of because it addresses and it gives the audit and control the complete insight into the deterministic and non-deterministic natures of AI models. Fantastic. And uh... As for, for those listening, if you want to, if you don't already know where we are, you can find FinTech Futures online at www.fintechfutures.com, uh, on Twitter at, at @fintechfutures, and on LinkedIn just by searching for FinTech Futures and looking for our lovely logo with the two Fs. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, then please feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service of choice. As always, we really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find the podcast. You could write us a review or recommend us to a friend. Uh, Thanks, as always, for any and all support. We'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye.